Uh, really glad that you're here. We're, uh, we're continuing a series of messages that we started last week on Easter Sunday uh, called Cover to Cover, and we're talking about the fact that, that Jesus is the central event of Scripture, and, and He's all through the Bible. Uh, back in 1999, um, there was a movie that came out called The Sixth Sense. It's hard to say sixth. The Sixth Sense. Anybody see The Sixth Sense? You remember that movie? had Bruce Willis in it. Uh, by the way, if you didn't see the movie, I'm about to spoil it for you, but it's 15 years old, so, you know, it's too late. You're, you're out of luck. But uh, there's this movie, and, and uh, Bruce Willis was in it, and he played, uh, played this child psychologist, and, uh, and, and he helps, you know, children get over traumas and things like that, and he, he ends up with this patient uh, who has a very strange problem, and this patient says that he can see dead people. You remember that? You know, that was the whole, that was the tagline of the movie, I see dead people. And, and he sees these people, they're dead, but, but he says they don't know that they're dead. And, and so, so he's trying, and they, these dead people are coming to the, by the way, first of all, I'm not saying that's true, all right? It's just a movie, I'm using it for an example. But, but he sees dead people, and these dead people come to him, and they tell him things, and so he's trying to find out what's going on. Well, so you watch the whole movie, and then right at the very end, the last 10 minutes of the movie, you find out that Bruce Willis's character, that he was actually one of the dead people. And you didn't know that the whole time. And, you, and there's this huge twist at the end. And you find out that he's a dead person that doesn't realize he's dead. Now, that's the only movie that I've ever rented to watch that I watched two times in a row. Because I watched it the first time and like, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. And I immediately started it over. And, wa- and back then, that was hard because you had to rewind it and... and uh, and so I rewound it all the way, and then I started it again and watched the whole thing again just so that I could try to find out what did I miss? What was it that I missed? And, and when you went back, and, and after you went back and watched it from the beginning, knowing that Bruce Willis was dead, you could see there were some clues. There were some, there were some things that the director threw in there and, and some colors and some other things that were trying to give you hints along the way that, hey, Bruce Willis is really one of the dead guys. Because see, I like to think that I can pick up on those things. When I watch CSI or Law and Order, I feel good about myself about halfway through. I'm like, yeah, that girl right there, she did it. And then I'm right at the end. I feel good about myself. And so I missed that one and I wanted to find out. And so, but there were clues there. And as you read the scripture, as we talk about the story of Jesus, what I told you last week is true that, that the, that the cross the Jesus' death on the cross and Jesus' resurrection from the grave is the central event of all of the Bible. And, but but if, you, if you were to pick up the Bible, didn't know anything about Jesus, didn't know anything about church or, or Scripture, if you were to pick up the Bible and read it like you do a regular book from front to back, Jesus doesn't even show up until like two-thirds of the way through. And so it's hard for you to think, now how can, you're saying that's the central thing and he's not even in most of it. But just like that movie, if you know what happens at the end, if you know about the cross and you know about the resurrection and then you go back and you look at it from the beginning, you look at Genesis all the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, you begin to see little places where, oh yeah, I see that there. That's pointing the way to the cross. That was put in there to let us know that something was going to happen later on. See, one of our problems is when we read the Bible is that we tend to view uh, the Old Testament, we tend to view God one way in the Old Testament, another way in the New Testament. In in the Old Testament, we tend to see God kind of like this picture right here. 
he's old and he's angry and he's ready to smote something, right? That's the, that's the old King James Version. I was raised reading the King James Version when I was a kid. And that's, that's the way we see God. He's got fire in his hand and he's just waiting. All right, you mess up and I'm burning your tail. I'm, I'm taking you out. That's the way we see God in the Old Testament. And, 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 then, and then in the New Testament, we kind of go the other direction. And this is the way we tend to see Jesus in the New Testament. He's like a hippie Jesus, right? And, and he's, he's playing a Fender Stratocaster and wearing flowers. And he's just, hey, let's just all love everybody. It's all good. Let's all just come together. And it doesn't really matter which path you're taking at all. And that's the way we think about Jesus in the New Testament. And the problem with both of those, there's a lot of problems with both of those. One of the problems with both of those, they're both partially correct because God in the Old Testament does show judgment, but guess what else God does in the Old Testament? He also shows love. And Jesus in the New Testament preached love and talked about love all the time, but guess what else he talked about in the New Testament? He talked about judgment. And see, when we try to separate God, when we try to think about, okay, Old Testament God was old, and he was like an old man saying, kids, get off my lawn. In the New Testament, Jesus is like a hippie saying, hey, everybody, let's gather together and smoke something. When we try to separate these two, these two sides of God, what we're doing is, is we're, we're going into some really bad, dangerous theological ground because what's happening is we are separating what was never designed to be separated because what we know from scripture is God is one. Jesus is God. God is God. The Holy Spirit is God. I know it's hard to understand, but, but just hang with me. And, and all of those together make one and they never are in disagreement with one another. God and Jesus are the same. And, and one of the ways that we can see Jesus being, actually being God is if you go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible. If you go all the way back to the very first verse of the Bible. So if you've got a Bible, you can open to Genesis right now. Just very, the very first one. If you've got your Bible on your phone, open that up. And, and Genesis 1-1. Now this is a verse of scripture that, that some of you, even though you say you can't memorize scripture, you've probably got this one memorized, even though you don't realize it. So look at Genesis 1-1 with me. And it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what I love about the, that, the, how, that, how the Bible begins is it starts off, in the beginning, God. And so it sets the tone right from the beginning that you understand, this is, this is God's book. What I'm about to tell you is God's story. And so from, from the very first paragraph, you understand what we're reading is, is, is all about God. It's God-centered. And as you continue to read through the first chapter of Genesis, you'll, you'll see that, I mean, it's, it's got God all over it because the whole first chapter of Genesis is just about every other sentence begins like this, and God said... And God said, and God said, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be uh, plants to produce vegetation. And it, it just goes on and on and on like that. And God is all over there. And when you first look at it, it's like, okay, Cliff, you're telling me Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, that's the central event of scripture, but it's not even mentioned back there when you get to Genesis. Jesus is nowhere to be found. Well, go to Genesis 1.26 and look what it says there. Then God said... Let, say this next word with me, us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping things 
that creeps on the earth. By the way, that means all those bugs you saw when you came in this morning, there was a bunch of them out here. I stomped on a bunch of them because I have dominion over them. I can do whatever I want to those creeping things. So don't feel bad when you do that. But, but the, the Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Now, does God have a personality disorder or something? Does he, is he suffering from something here and he begins to refer to himself in the plural? No, what's going on there is there was someone else at creation. That it wasn't God all alone. That Jesus didn't make his first appearance in the world in Bethlehem, but that Jesus was there at creation. Not only was Jesus there at creation, he was creating. And, and if you go to the New Testament, you see the same thing. The book of John chapter 1 says this, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. Now, let me, let me just stop right here. I'm not going to take real long on this, but just so you understand. When John says, in the beginning was the Word, he's talking about Jesus. Word is capitalized there. He's, he's giving that name to Jesus. And the reason he's doing that is because there were these people that lived back then called the Gnostics, and they were teaching some bad stuff. And so John was using the word Word for Jesus. And so he's saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And we know that he's talking about Jesus here because when you get to verse 14 of John chapter 1, he says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's what John says about Jesus. John says that, that Jesus, who came to earth as a baby, came to earth as flesh, lived here with us. He was there at creation, and he says nothing was made without his hand being in it. That Jesus made. So when, when God was saying, let there be light, let there be animals, let us make man in our own image, that was Jesus right there, and they were creating this thing together. Get to Colossians 1, 15-17. Look on the screen. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. Talking about Jesus. He said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So not only did Jesus create everything, but the fact that the earth still spins on its axis, the fact that we don't have planets running into one another, is because Jesus is holding everything together. It's all about Him. See, the clear message that we see from Scripture from the beginning is that Jesus is not a created being. He is the Creator. He's not a created being. He is the Creator. And there's some other, there's some other uh, religions out there that will teach you that Jesus was somebody that God created, that there was only God, and then He created Jesus, and Jesus was a teacher and all this stuff. Jesus was a teacher, but He wasn't created by God. He is God. He is the Creator. And even the wording of Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1, it sounds the same. And Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning there was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That Those two things are telling us the same exact message, that Jesus is the Creator. And see, for us to understand what we talked about last week, 
for us to understand the cross and the resurrection and that the cross and the resurrection are the central event in all of human history. If we're going to get that, the first thing we need to get is we need to understand that Jesus has always been. That, they, that, that Jesus doesn't have a starting point that began in, in Bethlehem and ended uh, in, in Jerusalem, that, but Jesus has always been. See, and then when you begin to look into the story of Genesis even further, you get after the creation and you get into Genesis chapter 3. So go ahead and flip over to Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. You see there that we see, begin to see some things pointing us towards the New Testament. We begin to see where Jesus was, was, was present and, and he was being talked about and being pointed. Look, look at um, Genesis chapter 3, 8 and 9. I'm going to read that in just a second. Let me tell you what happens right before this, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. You might know the story, but let me just listen to me while I tell it for a second here. There was, the, everything was perfect in the Garden of Eden. God had made man and woman, Adam and Eve. He'd made them plenty of stuff to eat. He'd made animals and, and all this stuff where they were all friends. Everybody's living in harmony. And God had given one commandment, and he had said to, to Adam and Eve, he said, all this, you can eat anything you want in here, but don't eat off of this one tree right here. And you know what happened. Eve goes and she gets some of the fruit off the tree. Because why? Because Satan was in the form of a snake, and Satan was doing what he does better than anything else. He was lying to her, and he was beginning to say to her things like, hey, did, uh, did God really mean not to eat that? It's kind of the way Satan does today to, to, to folks, you know. Did God, did God really mean that you're not supposed to have sex at all until you're married? I mean, surely God, if, if you love each other, God would think that's, did God really mean that? And we say, no, oh, I guess he didn't. And we, next thing you know, we're getting somebody pregnant and having to get married and all that kind of stuff. Because why? Because we're listening to Satan's lies. And so Satan was lying to Eve. And so Eve takes the fruit and she begins to eat it. Now, listen, guys, don't think we're off the hook. Guess where Adam was while all this was going on? Standing right beside her. He did nothing to stop it. He did nothing to protect his wife, nothing to stand in the way of Satan. And he just sat there and watched her eat it. And then Eve looks at Adam and says, honey, guess what we're having for supper tonight? This. And Adam does what men have been doing for years and says, good, I'm hungry. And he eats whatever his wife gives him for supper. And so then sin enters the world. And, and after sin enters the world, all of this harmony, all of this good stuff that had been happening was ruined. Everything was ruined. Everything was out of balance. And so God comes along and he has to he has to begin to punish. And so, so this is what happens in verse 8 and 9. Right after Eve and Adam have both eaten of this fruit they weren't supposed to eat of, and it says this in Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. By the way, it never works. All right, just warning you, telling you from personal experience, you can't hide from God. He always finds you. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, here's why I think these verses are significant. You, do, you, do you recognize how personal that sounds? There, there, there were times before Genesis 3, 8, and 9 where God had talked directly to Adam and Eve. I mean, after all, he'd given them the, the commandment not to eat off this tree. And he had told them things like, be fruitful and multiply. And so... So he had, he had talked to them personally before, but this seems, this seems so much more personal. This, this is the first indication that we have in Scripture 
that God desires to have a personal relationship with the human race. God desires to have a personal relationship with the human race. And because when you when you see that it sounds like a it sounds like a friend searching for another friend or or it sounds like a a, a dad looking for his son. He's walking in the garden, where are you? I, I'm looking for you. I want to be with you. I want to talk with you about something. And, and so we, we see that, that there's something personal now where God wants to be personally involved in the lives of these humans. And see, when we begin to understand that God wants to have a personal relationship with us, that changes everything because when you have a personal relationship with somebody, it's different. When, when I was, um, Sherry and I went to, um, to seminary in New Orleans way back in, in 1992, and, um, and we, we were moving in on our first day moving in, and uh, I was wearing a, a Gamecock South Carolina hat, and, uh, and my next-door neighbor, uh, or downstairs neighbor, who I just met that day, he's, he doesn't know us, but he comes out and he's helping us move our furniture upstairs, and he's got an NC State hat on, so we start talking football, and at that time, NC State and South Carolina, neither one had anything to be proud of, so we were both kind of commiserating how our teams were terrible. And, uh, and then he says to me, he says, hey, do you know Gary Harper? And I said, what do you mean, know Gary Harper? He said, well, do you know of Gary Harper? I said, of course I know of Gary Harper. Now, those of you who aren't Gamecock fans, you're like, I don't know who Gary Harper is. Gary Harper was the quarterback of Carolina when I was 10 and 11 years old. And now, that was when George Rogers was playing for Carolina, so Gary Harper did a lot of this, just handing the ball to George Rogers, but they did let him throw it every now and then. But either way, he was the 10 and 11 years old. He's really the first South Carolina quarterback that I could remember. So I looked up to him. You know, as a fifth and sixth grader, this guy was kind of one of my heroes. And I said, yeah, I know who Gary Harper is. He said, well, you know, he's a student here. He goes to school here. He lives here on campus. And I said, are you kidding? He said, yeah. He said, I'll have to introduce you sometime. Well, turns out that I ended up having several classes with Gary over the next couple of years, and we got to be friends. And, and so, so now all of a sudden, I had gone from this, this person that I had only known through listening to on the radio or watching video clips on TV or, or reading about in the paper. We still did that back in 1980. And, and, and that, was, that was what I knew of him. Now, all of a sudden, that had become someone who's sitting at my kitchen table drinking coffee, quizzing me on Baptist history notes for our, our test we have the next day. And it totally changed what I thought about him. It totally changed our relationship. Why? Because now he wasn't somebody distant and far off. He was personal. I knew him. I could talk to him. I knew about his wife. I knew about his kids. He had met my wife. We had spent some time together. See, when, when it's so easy for us to think about God as, as being so far off. In fact, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, which we just read, he talks about how he is the invisible God. And it's so easy for him to seem far away and not a part of our lives. But what Jesus did What Jesus did on the cross, what Jesus did through the resurrection, is it takes a distant, faraway God and it makes him real and personal. And now what the completed work of Jesus on the cross allows us to be able to have a personal relationship with the God who created us. That it's real. It's not far away. It's not distance. But it's right there every day, a part of your life involved in what you have going on, involved in trying to follow him. And so we begin to see a pointing towards Jesus, even in creation, even in Genesis chapter 3, 8, and 9. But then, then the, the greatest thing that I see in Genesis chapter 3 that points us to Jesus, 
happens after Jesus gives some punishment. See, so after, after they've, he, he, he talks to Adam and Eve, he begins to punish them for what they've done. And he tells Eve, hey, listen, having babies is going to be a terrible situation now. It's going to be rough on your body. And he tells Adam, all that work that you've done, that you've enjoyed, now it's going to stink and you're going to hate your boss. And then he tells the serpent, he casts him out and he kicks Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And so, so he, he begins to punish them for what they've done. But then after all of the punishment, look what happens in Genesis 3, 21. And this is the biggest thing that points us to Jesus. Genesis 3.21 says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now that might not seem that important, but here's what you need to understand. Before sin, the Garden of Eden had a policy, which is a pretty cool policy, I think. It was all nude all the time. And so Adam and Eve were walking around, had no clothes on, and just loving life, enjoying it, feeling the breeze, just, it was awesome. Be a great way to live, I think. I'm trying to convince Sherry. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not really. And that was the way it was. And everything was, and, and you know, and it's funny, I laugh about that, but here's the thing that, that we don't understand, and we can't understand it because our minds are messed up by sin already. That was beautiful. That was the way God intended. There was nothing, there was nothing ugly about that. There was nothing sexual, you know, lustful, sinful about that. It was beautiful. And what sin did is sin all of a sudden took what God made beautiful and it made it shameful. And so the fact now that Adam and Eve had no clothes on was was not a beautiful thing. It was something that reminded them of how far they had fallen from God. It reminded them of the sin that they had committed. And they were ashamed to even be seen anymore. And so how does God remedy this situation? See, God covered that, covered that, their shame up. He, he made garments for them and he covered them up. He covered their sin instead of giving them the punishment they deserve for their, their sin. Now they had some punishment. They were kicked out of the garden. They, they had some other things that were going on. But what was the ultimate punishment of sin that they deserved? It was death. And God chose not to give them death, but instead, He chose to cover their sin, to cover their shame. And how did He do that? Well, it says that He made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin. Now, did He just happen to have a closet full of garments of skin? No, how do you make a garment of skin? Well, something has to die. And, and, and what died so that Adam and Eve could have garments of skin? What, what had to shed their blood? Well, it wasn't the people who committed the sin. God didn't kill Eve in order to clothe Adam, and he didn't kill Adam in order to clothe Eve. No, they were the ones who were guilty. They were the ones that should have had their blood shed for the sin. But instead, what did God do? God killed an innocent animal. And then use the garment of that, the, the skin of that innocent animal to make a garment to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. Just like what would happen thousands of years later when an innocent man living on this earth named Jesus, who is God in the flesh, had committed no sin. The only one of us who ever went through life without committing a sin. 
He would give up his life. He would shed his blood, the innocent one, so that his blood could cover the sins of the ones who were guilty. And that's exactly what God did for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. See, the plan for dealing with sin has always been the cross and the resurrection. From the beginning of time, that was God's plan. It was the cross and the resurrection. And we have a hard time, especially if you've read the Old Testament, and I know there are some of you in here that you've read through the Bible several times. You've read through the Bible more than me and Donnie put together probably. And, but, and, and so you know about how the Old Testament works. You know about what goes on in there. And, and so it can be confusing that God's plan from the beginning was the cross. Uh, I want to I confess something to you as your pastor, um, and, and maybe, you, maybe you don't want to come to church here anymore after this, I don't know, but let me just confess it to you. Um, I'm really, even though I like sports and like MMA fighting and manly kind of things and eating barbecue, I, I'm, really, I'm really pretty nerdy too. I love Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. Uh, and Harry Potter, I really like Harry Potter a lot, and now I've, I've just taken my nerdiness to an all-new level, thanks to my daughters, and now I watch Doctor Who on a regular basis. Now, those of you that aren't familiar with Doctor Who, congratulations, you're not a nerd, uh, and I used to be one of you, but now I'm not, and uh, Doctor Who is this, this show that, that comes on BBC, it's out of uh, England, and, and, uh, but here's, here's all you need to know about Doctor Who, is this guy, he's an alien, and he's a time traveler. And, and so he's got this box that he can travel through time and travel through space, but he's a time traveler. And so every single Doctor Who episode, there's some type of time travel involved. And, and here's the thing about time travel shows. And, and the, the last Star Trek movie, the one before, and this is, I know I'm even making myself even nerdier, that I really like that too. But, but the last Star Trek movie, the first one that came out when they relaunched the series, it, it had time travel in it. And if you've ever seen a TV show or a movie with time travel in it, it gets confusing, doesn't it? I'll be watching Doctor Who, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on because, wait a minute, he was here, and then he was here, and then, then you got like two people meeting themselves my older self is meeting my younger self. Now listen, <clears throat> time travel is not real. No matter what Stephen Hawking says, it is not real. You can't time travel. God didn't make us be able to time travel, all right? But, but, but here's the thing about that. When we start thinking about moving time around, it gets confusing. Why? Because time works one day after another. And it's easy for us to think about Jesus, and we want to put Jesus in a timeline. We like the fact that Year zero is the birth of Jesus. We like the fact that, that we know he lived 33 years on earth, then he was crucified and resurrected and he went back to heaven, and we can put Jesus in that timeline. That was Jesus. It started at Bethlehem, it ended in Jerusalem, he went up to heaven, and that's the timeline of Jesus. But what we need to understand is, is Jesus is not confined to that timeline. That Jesus was there before Bethlehem. Jesus is still here now. Every point along the way has been Jesus. He was there when God made the earth. He was there when Adam and Eve sinned. He was there when God then made the sacrificial system and started having priests uh, that, were, that were killing innocent lambs and that kind of stuff. He was there when the temple was built. He was there when the Old Testament ended and there was some years of silence there before the New Testament started. He was always there. And one of the things that, that we tend to think sometimes, especially if you've read through the Old Testament, is we think in terms of a timeline. And so we think, okay, God made humans. 
Humans sinned, and then after humans sinned, God said, well, i got to do something about this sin. So he came up with this crazy system where there would be animals killed and priests going into the temple and all this stuff. And then that didn't work because humans began to put too much emphasis on the system and not enough on God. And then it's almost like we believe God had somehow painted himself in a corner. And, well, what am I going to do now? I guess I'm going to have to go down there and die myself. But that's not the way it worked at all. The reason there was a sacrificial system in the first place is because it was going to point the way to the sacrifice Jesus would make on the cross. See, Jesus didn't have to die on the cross because there was a sacrificial system in place. It's like, okay, someone's got to be the the sacrificial lamb because we've set up this whole sacrificial thing. No, that's not why Jesus had to die. The reason the sacrificial system was there was because Jesus was going to die. The plan has always been from the beginning of time For Jesus to be on the cross, for Jesus to go in the grave, and for Jesus to come back again on Sunday morning. That is the plan God has put into place. And see, that cross and that resurrection make it possible for us to know God personally. It makes it possible for us to have a personal relationship with him that will carry us through good times and difficult times. And so as I finish up today, I just want to ask two questions. The first question is if you are here, and this is all new to you, my question to you would be, do you have that personal relationship? Have you, have you trusted that what Jesus did on the cross is real and that the resurrection is just as real and that Jesus is just alive today as he was when he was on this earth? And are you trusting that so that you can have a personal relationship with God? Because God wants that from you. He wants to spend time knowing who you are and you knowing him. And then my other question would be is if you're here, and and I know there are a lot of you that are like this, and you already have that personal relationship with Jesus, is what are you doing with that? That personal relation, that opportunity to have a personal relationship was bought at a extremely high price. An innocent man gave his life, suffered a painful death so that we could have that. And so the last thing we should do is abuse that personal relationship by just living however we want or by completely ignoring God and not having that time with him. Now I want to pray for us. If you are here today and, and, and you... Uh, you need to begin that relationship for the first time. I'm going to be down front here. Donnie is going to be down front here for a little bit. I want you to come find us, and we will talk to you about that and let you know how that works. If, uh, if you already have that and you're struggling a little bit, um, I want to pray for you. I want to know what's going on and how I can pray for you. And so please let me know about that. Let Donnie know about that. And I'll tell you this. Um, I know some of you look at me and you think, hey, Cliff's got it all together. He never has a hard time with his personal relationship with God. And, uh, and I'll, I'll just tell you, that's not that's as far from the truth as it gets. There are days that, um, I'm, this is shocking, now this really might make you want to leave the church, not me being a nerd. There are days that I'm not interested in reading the Bible at all. And... Uh, And I know none of you have ever been like that. I know y'all just wake up just ready to engage with Scripture every day, but not me. Some days I don't feel like it. Some days I don't feel like I want to do what God wants me to do. And so it can be difficult to live on this earth in a sinful culture, in a sinful body, 
and to still follow Jesus. But he died and he rose again so that we could. And so I want to pray for you that we'll do that better together. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that, that you've always been. That, that from the beginning you were here, from the beginning uh, you were pointing the way to the cross. And thank you so much that you have covered our shame and our sin for us in a way that we never could. I, I pray for, for those here today that, that don't know you that uh, don't have a relationship with you, I pray that today would be that day that they begin that relationship. And for those that do, I pray that they begin to live like it's real and that every day that their desire would be to know you more. Thank you that you've made it possible for us to be personally involved with you and to know who you are. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.